You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. We have uh, counted this morning, um, live in a house in, in Five Forks, we have 15 doors in the house. It's a great house, one of my, one of my faves. And uh, 15 doors times six kids means you have a lot of knocking on, on all those doors at all hours of the night. They go in shifts, you know, they're in the middle of the night. And um, so much so, so many kids, so many doors, so many knocking, I can identify who's knocking on the door just by the sound of their knock. Good dad knows the sound of the knock. So, you know, for example, my oldest, Rose Wong, she's got a soft but repetitive knock. Sounds like this. Doesn't stop. Just, hello? Yeah, dad, I want to see if I come in. That's how it goes, okay? The second, the second son, he's just the oldest two kids knock the best because they know they don't want to see dad in their underwear or whatever. So they're, you know, more, more uh, predisposed to knocking. The second one, Leo, even in his knocking, doesn't trust that I'm going to make myself appropriate by the time that I say it's okay to come in. So he just talks to me through the door. <laughs> knock, knock. Who's there? It's Leo. Hey, dad, can you uh, give me uh, more screen time? That's basically how Leo goes, okay? Now, Alec is just the most, like, went to manor school before he came out of the womb, like, has the appropriate knock, da, 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 da. Da, da, waits for me to ask and then responds. Like it couldn't, it was out of a textbook, just the best. Okay, so Alec is by far the best, the best knocker. And then probably the worst knocker of all is little Ollie. Little Ollie doesn't knock, he just sticks his little fingernail into that thing and unlocks the thing and just opens the door to like whatever is about to be in there. Brother could break out of Shawshank Redemption. He's such a, such a good locksmith these days. You know? right. So uh, I, really, I really wish the general public would, would learn you know, from my kids, because if you noted this, probably I blame the doorbell, really. Uh, the general public doesn't knock, okay? Have you ever been to a Starbucks before? You'll learn this pretty quickly. I have a very a strong pet peeve. Like, I will literally bring this up at Thanksgiving, and it doesn't have to do with a sermon. Like, if I'm in here and using the restroom, and you're out there in the general public, we are both winning by you knocking. Like, this is a win-win situation. You knocking, me answering however I need to respond is a great idea to knocking. And when you come up to the door and you don't knock and you just pull on that lock, I just feel like you're not owning up to your side of the bargain. Like, this is a 50-50 deal. Like, I'm, I'm invested in this. You need to be invested. You know what I'm saying? I will also knock. I will be on the other side of this. This is a general, you know, courtesy rule here. I will have been on this side of the knock where I will knock on the door. I will wait for somebody to talk. They don't talk. I think they just think, like, if, the, if somehow... Right? Psychologically, sociologically, if I can knock on this door and if I don't talk long enough, he'll just go away. That's not how that works. The way that you get somebody to go away is to talk. That's how you let them know. I'm in here and I will knock on the door. No one will talk. I'll slide it open and then they'll be like, hey. And I'll be like, you know what? Could have stopped this. You could have told me you're in here a minute ago. So I just think as a general rule, you know, we should all learn, learn to knock and learn to knock courteously. Um, uh, because call it old fashioned. I don't know if doors are ever going to go out of business. Doorbells are here but to stay, but doorbells are not, doors are not going anywhere. And uh, doors are great because doors present this beautiful exchange uh, between the person on the front side of the door and behind the other door of waiting and welcoming. Like if I come up to your door and maybe I think your kids are asleep or I don't want to wake up the dog and I come over to your door and I know that you're in there because I see the driveway and you invited me to come over and I knock, well, I could have just turned the door open, but then I would lose my chance to be welcomed by you. If I come to your door and I knock and I wait, what that creates is an opportunity to be welcomed in. 
On the other side, when I'm in my college dorm room and somebody comes along and wants to see if I wanted to go to the, you know, get food or whatever at the um, downstairs, is like, if I see the little shadows going under the thing, and I know my door is unlocked, but the person knocks, it creates this intimate opportunity that as they knock and as they wait, they have an option for me to say something or say nothing. And if I say something and invite them in and they open the door, they've now come into the door in a completely different context than if they barged in because now they've waited and they've been welcomed. And so there's something beautiful that's happening on the exchange of each doors that I think Jesus, knowing that doors weren't going anywhere by the time that he came here on this earth, talks to us about prayer on. Matthew 7 says it this way, that prayer is a lot like knocking. He says that if you want to know what prayer is like to see a finite person encounter the face of an eternal God, then think about what knocking is. He says, ask and it'll be given to you. Seek and you will find. And he says, knock and the door will be opened to you. Ask and it'll be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Conversely, in Revelation 3, not only is he saying that the church, the believers of the earth of every age should learn to knock, that uh, their knocking is really just a response to their maker, which is Jesus is on the other end and Jesus is knocking. We knock because Jesus knocks. In Revelation 3, he says, this way, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with them and they will be with me. So we've been waking our way through uh, the Bible, making our way through the book of Acts. And uh, over my shoulder is this target. And Luke has organized the book of Acts in three different sections, three different segments. The first section of chapters one through seven uh, chronicles the Holy Spirit bringing the gospel to saturate Jerusalem, chapters one through seven. After the death and the martyrdom of Stephen, the gospel, because it's been, been so heavily persecuted, spreads out into the surrounding areas, into Judea and Samaria. So whereas the, the gospel begins in a place that is 100% Jewish, it doesn't stay there. It spreads to a place where there's only 50% Jewish heritage. And then beyond chapter 12, goes into the utter ends of the, the earth from chapters 13 through 28, which puts us right here in Acts chapter 12 at the very edge of that second act. So uh, remember when your mom would take you to the theater and um, there would be some really dramatic thing that would happen at the end of the second act of the scene, you know, something would die or someone would die or some cliffhanger would happen and then the music would stop and the curtains would fall and it'd be time to go get popcorn and sit in line and get, and get, and get M &M, uh, peanut M&Ms and try and figure out what's going to happen. There's this kind of cliffhanger that happens at the end of it. And the cliffhanger at the end of Acts chapter 12 is the death of a king named Herod. So Herod's not to be confused with the five other, four other Herods that are in the Bible. Uh, it's the grandson of the one that threatened to kill Jesus, but is not the same Herod. So Herod is kind of like a family title. And Herod, uh, at the end of this chapter that we're going to read today, just drops dead full of worms. So he drops dead full of worms. And, uh, and the reason I think that Luke puts this at the very edge of the, of the section there in Samaria and, uh, and Judea is because, uh, remember when you played video games at the end of every level, there's a new boss? So this enemy is different than the first enemy because whereas the first enemy they were fighting and standing up against the Sadducees, the Jewish opponents, this guy is completely Roman and Gentile. So at the edge of the second act, we are confronting a new kind of an enemy in Herod who drops dead from worms. If only because in chapter 11, we're realizing that 
The church has expanded and grown. It has become so diverse. It has burst through every other social category and has not just been Jew, but all Gentiles alike. And now there has to be this new category of, of label for them. The church is now not just Jewish believers. The church is now Christians, which means that a Christian is not not Asian. A Christian is not not black. A Christian is not not a woman or a man or a slave or barbarian. A Christian is those cultures under the subcategory of Christian. And so now, now the church has moved from a fringe movement into a political opponent a political rival, and is faced up against not just the, just the ruling class of the Jewish nation, but the ruling class of the Gentile nation, if only to prove this, that, that in their transition, the church is learning that not only is Jesus sovereign over Israel, but he's sovereign over the earth, that he is in control of everybody that's in control, that he is not just a king, but he is the king of kings. And so in this moment, I think that, that Luke is collecting our thoughts before the intermission, intermission before we go and grab the popcorn to show us that although the church in this chapter is facing an enemy that they've never seen before and will face continually, bosses at the other end of every other level, ever-changing enemies, ever-changing opponents, ever-changing unfamiliarity, discomfort, unexpected things, although that the church is always going to be facing ever-changing enemies, it has an unchanging strategy. It has an unchanging strategy. This is the, this is the reason, the reason for the transition of, of 8 through 12, a church in transition, is that the transition is a training. And the training is this, that in a world of ever-changing enemies, there's an unchanging strategy. And the unchanging strategy is going to be listed today in our chapter, in verse chapter 5. The unchanging strategy of the church facing new enemies, the unchanging strategy is prayer. Acts 12, verse 5, Peter, who is kept in a prison that he's never been before, you and me are in a season right now we've never been in before. We've never been two years out of COVID before. We've never been in, um, in a season of a climate of political unrest. We've never been in, in a season of church disillusionment before. We've never been in this country at this time before. And then personally speaking, you have never been in the situation that, you've, that you're in. You're, you've never been betrayed like this before. Whatever relationship that you're in that you're struggling with and so on and so forth, you've never had to have this kind of, you've had relational discord like this, but you've never had it quite like this before, have you? You've never had this amount of success before. And you're more temptable than ever because you have more resources around you than you've ever had before. And you're facing a new enemy and a new opposition. You, you've never faced before, right, these, these oncoming challenges and enemies, but you still have the same strategy. And this is what Acts chapter 12 tells us that strategy is. Even though Peter and the church are in a brand new section of their mission in brand new enemies and oppositions and challenges, they still have the same strategy, and it's earnest prayer. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. And so as we, as we kind of approach our, we've been processing, if you're just joining us, this, this concept of like, life is never static. You will be different in 10 years than you are now. The Google photo that pops up on your memory will look different and sound different and think different than the one that's going to pop up in 10 years. And so you are constantly always in transition. The transition has not come um, just out of happenstance. According to the, the scripture, that in the gospel, Christian transitions are there for training. Christian transitions are for training. And here's the, here's the, here's the tip. The training is not to become an expert on the enemy that you have in front of you. The, the training is here to train you in prayer. The training is here to walk you through that transition, asking and answering the knock of Jesus. Asking and answering the knock of Jesus. 
And so here's what I think our season would be asking us. This is what our season is asking us is, have we yet now become a people of prayer? Have we not yet become a people that asks for and answers to the knock of Jesus? When was the last time that you heard the knock of Jesus on your door? Do you remember the first time you heard of knock of Jesus on your door? When was the last time that the job call came through, either the one you applied for or the one you didn't apply for? And you knew when you picked up the phone and the guy offered you the job that the guy had called you, but deep down in your spirit, and as you prayed through it, you knew it was also Jesus that was calling you, that Jesus was in the middle of that transition. When was the last time that your ears were open to the knock of Jesus on your door? When was the last time that somebody came up and they, they gave a testimony and they shared a story from their life where they unpacked and uncovered something deep into their heart and you knew that as they were talking, they were talking, but so was Jesus, that Jesus was talking. When was the last time that you heard Jesus knocking at your door? When was the last time that you saw somebody go over the line, cross the line and end up creating catastrophe for themselves and others and you thought to yourself, I'm not so sure I wasn't so far from that line in the first place either. And you realize it wasn't just that God was warning them, he was warning you too because Jesus never stops knocking on our door. And so this, I think, is what Jesus is saying to us and through the book of Acts is that prayer, prayer is a lot like my kids in the sense that we are always in prayer learning to knock. And so this transition season, if it's not to be wasted, this season is not for you to become an expert on COVID. It's for you to become a people of prayer. Will you now, are you yet ready to not seek prayer last but first? Will you not, are you not now ready, if this, this transition has not wasted its, its wash on you, to become a person that prays first and early rather than last and rarely? Are you now a person of prayer? This is, what I think, what the transition is asking us. And I think that if the Church of Acts were to be here today, again, this is different time, different season, different technology, different challenges, same spirit, same spirit, same providence of God. If the church was here today to encourage us in its pages of its photo album, it would ask us that question, or actually encourage us. Well, first, are you, are you people of prayer? But then it would encourage us. And if you're not, do you not know that everything that you need is just on the other side of the door of prayer? Have you not learned this? That even right now as you sit, you probably, if you're like me, are trying to spin and think about ways to handle the emptiness of your heart right now, the energylessness, the fatigue of your life. And the church of Acts would say from experience, from the scripture, do you not know that your overflow is just on the other side of prayer? The thing that you need is just on the other side of prayer. Some of us, whether we know it or not, are feeling this burden. We can even feel it physically. We can feel this either stress or it's regret or shame. We feel this burden. And the church would come before us today in testimony and scripture to say, he, he meant it when he said, you can come to him with heavy burdens and be left light. Like lightness for your heavy burdens is just on the other side of prayer. You could leave this room today, Jesus might would say. You could leave this room today with everything that you need if only you would learn to pray. If only you learned to ask and seek and knock. You could leave this room out of confusion into clarity, if only because of prayer. So here it is in verse 1. I'll reread what Sam read earlier. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to per persecute them. You have to remember that the book of Acts is so um, lively with the work and action of the Holy Spirit. In our preoccupation with the Spirit, we can't forget also the agenda of Acts to teach us not just about the spirit, but about the sovereignty of Jesus. That all of Herod's intentions are just God's instruments for doing his things, doing what he wants to get done. So here's King Herod, 
and he's testing the political waters. And he's realizing that there's a collusion between the church and the state, just like we always have today, right? That the Jewish synagogue has gone in bed with the, with the government and has colluded against the spirit of God. And he's finding out now that not only is it acceptable, but it's popular to kill Christians to his Jewish supporters, his biggest uh, constituency. So verse two says he has James killed. So he starts on the bottom and he's going to make his way to the top, see if he can kill Peter, the headship right there of the figurehead of the Christian church. Verse two, he says he kills James, the brother of John, puts him to death with a sword. And when he saw that this was met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers. 16, right? Four times four, 16. Herod intended, right? But God's intentions will undermine his intentions every time. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. What Herod doesn't understand, and what sometimes we don't understand, is that God's in charge of those in charge. And he uses even evil intentions to turn for good, that no weapon would be formed against the church because because of not just the spirit of God, but the sovereignty of Jesus. That Jesus is sitting above us, not on clouds, but on a throne, and rules and reigns over everything that we see down here. And so by the end of this story, what Herod doesn't know is that although he tries to kill Stephen, that killing Stephen is going to lead to his own death. That in seizing Peter and putting him into a prison, it's actually going to cause the seizing of his own body with worms. And in interrupting the festival of unleavened bread, Instead of his promise of offering the nation's bread, which every political party is always offering and can never deliver, I will feed you bread, he's going to deliver worms instead out of his own body, right? So he thinks he's putting the church on trial. Little does he know he's being put on trial for execution. But yet, verse 5, new enemy, same strategy. Peter was kept in prison, but the church didn't stop praying. Verse 6, the night before Herod was uh, uh, to bring him to trial... Watch this. You know, what, you, you know what a person that has a good theology about sovereignty uh, can do really well? A person that understands God's sovereignty. Watch what Peter is doing. The night before his probable execution, or at least his trial for execution, the night before Herod was to bring Peter to trial, Peter was pacing. Peter was worshiping. Peter was praying. Peter was sleeping. You know what people that have a good doctrine of sovereignty have? In their life rhythm, they sleep real good because they know that God's hands are big, right? And his plans are good. And no weapon that can be turned against you while you're awake or while you're sleeping can, can prosper anyways. So Peter's not using any of his time doing this. The night before he's going to go to trial, probably for his execution, he's asleep between two soldiers bound with two chains. Didn't know there was a rap artist back then, two chains, uh, in the book of Acts 12. Uh, and the sentry stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared in light and shone in the cell. He struck Peter Upside the head, woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fall off Peter's wrists. Now, this is just funny to me. Watch all the, watch all the events that happen. So verse 8, the angel says, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap up your cloak around uh, you and follow me. So he does, and the angel tells him to do all this stuff. And there's verse 9. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea what the, the angel was doing was really happening. He was like in half sleep and half awake. And he thought he was seeing a vision. And they passed the first guard and then the second guard. And then the huge iron gate that nobody could open opens on its own. It opens all by itself and they walk through it. And when they had walked the length of one street, suddenly an angel left him. And that's about the time, Luke says, right around the time after he wakes up from his nap, gets up between two Roman soldiers, chains fall off his thing. The prison gates open. He passes by the 16 soldiers. He walks straight out the gate with nobody, nobody bothering him. And the iron gates that nobody can open, open up. And he walks out and he goes, that's about the time when Peter realized, 
you know, without a doubt, I think the Lord sent this angel and rescued me out of Herod's clutches. And from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. I love uh, John Tyson's definition of prayer. John Tyson, the guy from New York Church. Um, he says, prayer is, 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 um, is anticipation without assumption. He says, the problem with the way that we do prayer life outside of the Spirit is we have one or the other. We have assumption without anticipation or anticipation without assumption. In other words, we're very quick to assume what we think God is saying and doing. And when he doesn't do what we think he's saying and doing, we get super flustered and frustrated and we give up praying. And here's the thing about Peter, and it's actually, I don't think it has to do with his, his fogginess or his, his physical disabilities or whatever. I think Paul follows the same exact spirit. In one case, Peter's told to go out of the prison, he leaves. In one case, the door is open for Paul and Paul senses his obedience should keep him in the prison to minister to the guards. And so here, here we have this, this idea that, that Peter, he's like, He's assuming that God is working all the time, but he's not assuming he knows how. Like, if you come into this place, like, what does it look like to just expect? That's the hard thing, is to expect something without assuming you know what it is. To assume that God is going to move, but not assume you know exactly how he's going to do it. What if you came here today and you thought, oh, I'm really excited about worshiping today. And actually, you're not here just to worship. You're here because your kids are being your kids are being ministered to downstairs, and all of that would be missed if your assumption got in the way of your expectation. Or what if you came here today and you were like, "Oh, I'm going to go through the Book of Acts. And I'm excited to hear what happens in this next chapter or whatever," and you don't realize that really you came here not to hear the Bible, but to get prayed for after the service. And none of that would happen if you didn't have your eyes open for breaking down the categories of of your own assumption. And so, uh, and, and so here's what I think. Is, is, is really, really matters a lot about, about this passage as it talks about the idea of, of, of sovereignty and prayer. Is, it's important to, to understand in prayer like what God's sovereignty is and what it isn't. If you look at the passage and look at other passages of Scripture, like sovereignty, God's sovereignty, uh, doesn't make man robots. God's sovereignty makes man children. So I, I'm, a, I'm a dad. I got four kids. And um, I am supposed to be, at least on paper, in charge of my house. I'm responsible for my house. I'm supposed to have the final say-so of, of, of the house and, you know, manage the budget and do, do good things. But as a, as, as a sovereign parent, as the one that's in charge of my house, doesn't mean I control everything in my house. Please don't come into my house and think that something happens in my house. That means that I controlled it and I made it happen. Like, it just means that I'm in charge. I'm responsible. I'm, I have authority. That means I'm, I'm sovereign over the house, right? And so as a parent, I have to pick my battles I have to choose wisely what I'm going to do in leveraging that authority, hopefully for the greater good. And I have these different categories. Like, in other words, like, there are some things that I've just got to let my kids do because they need to experience life on their own. And I'm not going to get in the way. That's my sovereign choice, to limit my control, to allow my kids to do what they're going to do so they can learn what the world is like and hopefully learn what I'm like, right, out of that. Sometimes, though, sometimes, though, the world's not going to give them quick enough consequences, so I've got to take the door off the hinge if you're going to continue to close the door on me, right, and remove the door because we don't have locked doors in the house, you know? So I create a consequence because I love my kid. That doesn't mean I control the kid. I just create a consequence. And sometimes when the kid's about to run out in the street, I do, I do intrude and I grab that kid up and sweep him off the street. Sovereignty doesn't make God in control. It makes him, it makes him king. It means that 
It means that he is responsible and has authority to make decisions in and out of our life because he's a good father and that's what a good father does. So why is that important? Well, then of course, if you think about it from the aspect of the child, then talking to the father is probably a pretty good idea. Do you want to have good experiences in your life? Talk to the guy who's walked 40 years of it. How about that? Or if you're in the person of prayer in that metaphor, praying to the one who created it all. If you want to have a better experience in life, it's your choice, right? You can have good experiences or bad experiences. You're going to have better experiences if you talk to the sovereign one who created you in the first place and created all your circumstances. You're going to have better circumstances and experiences. If you don't want to get corrected in the discipline of the Lord because God disciplines those he loves, then you can have the choice instead of getting corrected to have a conversation with him. Do you see how talking to the sovereign God might be a good idea? The one who has it all and can do it all, having the conversation before the consequence comes is probably a good idea. You can have the consequence, but it'd be better to have the conversation. And in terms of his direct intervention, like times that God's hand immediately goes in front of the street to rip you out of the street before you walk into it, well, prayer is really helpful for that too because that's going to lead the difference between clarity and confusion. Why is my dad just picking me up off the street? Oh, I know, because he told me this is, I'm not supposed to be on the street and getting hit by this car. You see how sovereignty is actually a friend of prayer, not an enemy. Because typically, if you have a high view of sovereignty, the idea is, why would I pray to a God who has it all planned out anyways? It doesn't really matter what I say to him. That's ridiculous. You can't read anything in the Bible about Joshua or, or intercessors or Moses or, or, or Abraham pleading for the innocence of the righteous in Sodom and Gomorrah. Right? You can't make an argument to me that prayer doesn't change or move God's heart. It only moves me. That's impossible. I'm a child, he's my father, and what I say to him absolutely matters. You think that if a kid comes to me, right, and tells me, hey, dad, like, I think I learned this lesson, I'm not gonna manage my iPhone this way, you think I'm gonna, like, restrict the consequence, like, tighter than he needs to learn the lesson? No. If he can have a conversation with me of respect, right, and dignity, I'm gonna give him more freedom and more liberty with my own parenting, and how much more will it be with our Father in heaven? Talking with God changes things. And sovereignty, knowing that he's the one that does it all and and has it all and knows it all, should actually infuse my prayer with more vitality than damper it down. It should draw me to want to pray more. Here's the deal. Jesus says that if you're ever tempted this week, there is a way out. You know why? You know why prayer matters? It's because if I know that Jesus says I have a way out of every temptation that's going to come to me this way, I should probably talk to him about where that is. Rather than I just get taught by the temptation. I would rather get taught by my father than my consequence, right? If I know that, 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 that he has rest for all the heavy burden and all the heavy laden, then I have a choice. I can go out and try and find my rest by drinking, or I can just go to him and shortcut. So here's the point is that prayer doesn't necessarily change the will of God. It just makes my life easier or harder. I can have it the easy way or the hard way. Hard way means prayerlessness. Easier way is prayer. Talking to a sovereign father just makes sense. It just makes sense. And so Peter's sleeping, but that doesn't say that nobody's praying. It just says that his experience was the sovereignty of God. He was asleep and an hour later ended up outside the prison because of grace and not by his effort. But yet still, that doesn't mean that nobody was praying. So look at peering in on the other side of the story in verse 12, on the other side of the door. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying, and Peter knocked on the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. So you know the Bible's dramatic and life is hard, and God knows this, and so he cracks a few jokes in the middle. Here's this little servant girl. Imagine you're home from the military, right, for the first time. You're home from prison when you're an apostle and you just got released, and you come into the door and you look through that little peephole, and you knock on the door, and you're trying to be quiet because the Gestapo's trying to get you, and uh, here's this window, and here's a little servant girl, and you're like, oh no, Rhoda, don't do it. And you knock on the door, and Rhoda comes to the door, and she's like, oh, it's Peter, right? And then 
instead of coming over and open the door, just runs around and turns away and just like runs back down the steps. She's so excited. She can't even open the door for Peter, the guy that just got released from prison because she needs to go tell the people that are praying about it. The Peter's outside the door and let them know, you know, probably the best thing to do, Rhoda, is not to go tell the people, is to just open the door. How about that? Let Peter inside. I'm frustrated if I'm Peter. That's all I'm trying to say, right? Oh, you're out of your mind. Verse 15, this is what the church says. They told her. And when she kept insisting it was so, they said, it must be an angel. They believed in guardian angels back then, and the idea of somebody that was following you around probably looked like you too, and so maybe he was just his angel. I'm comforted by this, that sometimes being in the will of God doesn't necessarily mean you understand the will of God. Sometimes it's not until the hindsight in 2020 that you realize, oh, that was God doing something. Like I can tell you from my own personal testimony, when me and Kyra, Romeo and Juliet, right, star-crossed lovers back in the day, Got separated at high school, you know, going to college in our separate corners. It's the most painful thing. Where are you, God? Why did you do that? It's not until 10 years ago, oh, you were strengthening our individual relationships with you. If it wasn't for that season, we'd only be tied to each other and not tied to you. And we came out of that season leaning on Jesus. And so oftentimes we're so quick to assume the will of God in the moment. This is what God's saying. This is what God's doing. Here's Peter. Here's the church. They're getting freed out of prison. They don't even know what's happening until 10 years, you know, 10 days after the fact. Oh, maybe that was God freeing me out of the prison. And so, so here it is is that they're so busy praying, they don't even see the will of God while they're in the middle of praying for the will of God. But Peter keeps on knocking. He just keeps on knocking. Peter keeps on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought them out of the prison. Tell James and the other brothers and the sisters about this, he says. And he left for another place. Verse 18, in the morning there was no small commotion, I assume so, uh, that the soldiers... Uh, among the soldiers, as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they would be executed. God is in charge of every court case, and God is in charge of everyone that's in charge. And ultimately, when Herod was putting Peter on trial, he was ultimately putting himself on trial. And so here's, here's, we see, here, here's what we see is this portrait of prayer as knocking. You see how Peter just continues to knock? Peter's continued to knocking. He doesn't give up the first time. Like when the door doesn't open, he just, you know, the Amazon person, you're so frustrated. You just like can't wait for that iPhone to get there. And you watch the little delivery thing. And it's like, oh, it's in Kansas. And then it goes here and then it goes there and it's going to be there. And you stay home and you like call off of work and you're like sitting there. And then of course, the second you go take a shower, what happens? The Amazon guy comes and he knocks on the door with like a cotton ball, right? Nobody answers the door. You just like took a shower in literally 30 seconds and you came out and there's a little sticker. It's like, sorry, Mr. Wong, we're going to deliver your iPhone next week. And you're like, ah, right? The Amazon guy does not do what Jesus does. The Amazon guy knocks once because he's there to do a job. But Jesus doesn't stop knocking. He continues trying to break in to try and get to you because this is not about delivering packages. This is about reaching and seeking and coming out and coming in of relationship is what Jesus is doing. And so this is the picture that I get is that not only is Peter knocking, but Peter's knocking is really an image of what's been going on in the church. What has the church been doing all this time? They've not stopped knocking. Peter is knocking to emphasize the fact that the church hasn't stopped knocking, but the church has not stopped knocking, I think, for the scripture to tell us who else hasn't stopped knocking. Jesus. Jesus was the one that allowed for James to get knocked down. Jesus was the one that knocked over the guards on the way into the prison. Jesus was the one that had to slap Peter and knock Peter upside the head. How many of you guys know that when the knock of Jesus comes, it's not always you know, a Bethel music song. Sometimes it's a tough consequence that shakes you awake from your slumber. That's good knocking too. He's been knocking in the prison. He's been knocking on the gate. He's been knocking on the door through Peter. He's been knocking at the, at the gates of heaven through the church. Peter has not stopped knocking because the church has not stopped knocking. And the church has not stopped knocking because, get this, Jesus never stops knocking. He just keeps pursuing. Imagine if you, on some type of a romantic relationship, right, of your marriage, let's say if you've been married for 20 years, go on one date. How's that going to work? 
If you knocked one time, those of you guys that are married in the room, let's say uh, you allowed uh, for that spouse to make one mistake, but no more than one mistake, and you just stopped knocking because they, they made one mistake. How good would that relationship happen? The perpetual knocking of a relationship doesn't stop because it wants for and longs for what's on the other side, and it will not quit in pursuing. This is how we know. Some of you guys in the room are thinking, maybe I missed my calling. Maybe I just was asleep when God was saying something. Maybe I just messed it up too bad, and I'm way off track, and God can never pull me off track. You know why I know that's not true? You know why I know that's not true? Because Jesus never stops knocking. The minute the door closed, whether the enemy closed it or you closed it or some stupid friend of yours closed it, another one began to open because Jesus is persistent and not, not, and not stop knocking on your door. He wants to come in with you and he will not stop pursuing you in this thing, in this relational lever of never stopping to knock. The last thing I think I see about this whole little prayer circle is that prayer is not only just for once, it's for always. Also, prayer is not just to be done alone, it's to be done together. Notice this, is that if let's just say in an ulterior universe, Peter comes at the door and he stops knocking and just goes and runs his own way. You know what's going to happen is that that church is never going to know how much their prayers mattered. You see that? Peter's continual knocking, his perpetual knocking, brings the testimony that confirms that Jesus was with the church when they were praying. And if, Peter's, if the church is not praying, I think the Bible is basically saying that if the church doesn't ask then maybe Peter doesn't get awakened up out of his cell and Peter doesn't get to come to the door and see, oh, Jesus matters in their prayer. And Jesus was the one that rescued me. And so their continual knocking encourages Peter's continual knocking. And all of that continual knocking shows that Jesus is ultimately the one that never stops knocking. It's only when we come together in prayer that that happens. And so I was out Christmas shopping just yesterday. And it's really amazing when you shop with a group of people, how each one of the people... Uh, in that group are thinking of multiple different things at different times. Like some people are in the toil aisle and some people are over here in the robe aisle and your wife is off buying something that's so cute, but you would never have thought of it, but it's a good idea that she's buying that thing and not you and so forth, right? How much more in prayer when we gather together in saints, as saints, and, and you, can, you can hear there's that person who like, they're not speaking in tongues. They're not praying scripture. They just love to pray for names. How many of you guys are thankful when you get inside of a room and somebody just continues to bring names and you're like, that's right. This prayer, it's about people. It's not about some big religious movement. It's about one by one, name by name, person by person. But then there's that person who's next to them who's not so considerate about names, but knows the scripture. Man, have you ever heard a grandma pray the scriptures before? Everybody in their life needs to hear and be under a grandma that prays scripture. And, and that person is thinking about scripture in a way the person that's thinking about names is not thinking about names. Have you ever met a person when they pray, it just brings calm to the room? They slow the room down and they remember that this prayer thing is not about fighting for something, it's receiving what Jesus has already fought for. And when that person prays, because you're not thinking about the calmness of the Lord, they are, you receive the calmness that they're praying about. But for every person that's calm in prayer, you need somebody that's fired up too. And some people that are here and they're selectively, I believe, gifted to pray in a way that riles the church up and calls them to a higher calling than just a safe little life. Not to say that the gospel isn't calm, but also that the gospel is energizing. That the gospel fires us up, that, that there are some that pray for the relational sides of things and some that pray for the glory sides of things and some that pray for the kingdom sides of things. And all that being said is that prayer is a team sport. Prayer is for all of us, not just once, but for always to continually knock. So it all closes up here in this last little section, the fate of Herod, if you'd read with me in Acts chapter 12, uh, verse 19. It says, Herod, he kind of gets, he kind of gets, um, he kind of gets scared and uh, he gets out of Dodge. He goes from Judea to uh, Caesarea, and he stays there for a while. And I think he kind of like makes himself feel a little bit more comfortable with more um, 
passive citizens within his, within his uh, colony. So verse 20 says, he had been quarreling with this one group of Tyre and Sidon, but probably needs to play the political leverage to go back over there to get their unity. And so they had joined um, and sought audience with him. Notice how the people of God seek the audience of Jesus, whereas the, the people of this earth seek the audience of kings. So after securing the support of Blastus, which is the way you do politics, right? A trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their own food supply. This is classic politics, right? Promising bread, delivering none of it. Every four years, the president gets up there and tells you he's going to give something that we all know he's not going to give you. But somehow, it makes us feel good to believe it and then vote for him and be surprised when he doesn't. This is classic, left and right. So on the appointed day, remember, Acts is not just about the spirit, but about sovereignty. All the times and the places have already been apportioned, right? This is what he says to the disciples at the very beginning of the book. Verse 21, on the appointed day, down to the hour, Herod, wearing his royal robes, they said that there are these translucent, glowy-looking, shimmering robes that make him look divine. He's wearing these glowing robes. He sits on a throne. He delivers the, preach, the, the speech that he can't deliver on. In verse 22, they shouted, this is the voice from God, not a man. Not something that we you know, do in our political climates at all ever, right? So verse 23, and immediately, according to God's time, and because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down. He's eaten by worms and he died. But verse 21, the word of God continued to spread and flourish. So the opposite of prayer is not just prayerlessness. The opposite of prayer is politics. Because whereas prayer is looking to Jesus as the sovereign king, politics is looking to man as the sovereign king. And in our four-year cycles, the same thing will happen as it did back then, as it will, you know, in two years, is that some guy's going to come out, the Wizard of Oz, he's going to come out from behind the curtain, and he's going to make a bunch of promises. He's going to say, you stick with me and you're never going to go hungry again. Bread and peace and welfare and no taxes and everybody's going to get it. It's all going to be happy. And all of that is testing who you think is king. It's not bad to vote, but it, is, but it is prayerlessness to believe that a man is going to sit on the throne and bring us peace, right? So here's the right. Okay, so the right, what does the right believe? The right's biggest value is individual responsibility, right? Individual responsibility. The left's biggest value is individual rights. Well, I think we all need rights. Don't we need rights? We need political rights, right? That's good. We don't need tyranny, but we also need responsibility, right? We need both of these things. It's not like none of these things are good. It's just about a priority. And so, therefore, the right believes that because responsibility is the most important thing, then accountability is what we need. We need to create carrots and sticks and a system that encourages personal responsibility because people don't take responsibility. We're all going to fall apart as a nation and we're all going to, the sky's going to fall, right? Same thing over here. If we get tyrannical dictators, we don't defend the rights and we don't have this, then we won't thrive as a nation, right? And so, so the promise of the left, whereas the promise of the right is accountability, the promise of the left is tolerance. So here's the fatal flaw, the fatal flaw on both of them. There is no amount of accountability that can change the human heart to take responsibility for their own sin. There's no, there's no tax break. There's no incentive. There's no building up to the military. There's no spending or lack of spending or propping up the American dream. That's going to change any heart, and you know that. And then over here, here's the problem. Giving individual liberty and freedom and tolerance is not going to make anybody better because ultimately, people are not ultimately good. They're ultimately evil, Right? So here's how I think we should approach politics. How should you approach politics as a Christian? How do you buy painkillers at, at, at the CVS? When we go to vote, we're doing pain management. That's about it. One of them's going to swell your liver. The other one's going to swell your kidneys. And both of them are going to sol solve you know, your pain. You know what they're not going to do? Heal cancer. So when you go out of that, that voting booth with that little Tylenol in your pocket, don't be surprised if the country still has cancer. right? Because the right and the left cannot deliver on what they promise. There's nothing wrong with voting, but there is something wrong with the political spirit. 
and it will divide the church, right? And it, it'll not just be bad defense, it'll be bad offense. So politics looks like looking to man as king. Prayer looks like looking to Jesus as king. So the opposite of prayer is not just prayerlessness, it's politics. It's believing that that guy's sovereign and not him. It's believing that he knows it all and could do it all. And so I'm going to trust him and, and, and put my hope in him rather than prayer saying, I think, no, I think that he knows it all and does it all. And so I'm going to run to him. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to root my life in prayer instead of politics. And so all of that to say, this is just a really long announcement for prayer this Wednesday night, right? That's all this is. It's just a really long announcement. I said, Ashley, let me come in and just tag team this. Prayer is, 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 is going to be Wednesday night. And here's the thing about prayer. There's going to be no notes taken. There's going to be no sermon. There's going to be no music. There's going to be no energy, you know, per se, in terms of just music. There's going to be no fellowship. There's going to be no food. It's just prayer. And, and I'm not saying that God doesn't love Sunday mornings. I'm not saying he doesn't love the Christmas party and the nativity that we're going to do. But I would venture to say out of this passage that out of all the things and all the enemies that we're facing, probably the thing that he's got on his calendar the most is that prayer night. Because prayer is the foundation for all this stuff. If we show up to Sunday morning prayerless, are we doing anything at all? If we're coming here to like learn a couple new lessons about how to fix life or feel bad or see some friends or whatever, like are we really making any gains at all if it's not founded in prayer? If we come to the Christmas party and have another celebration and we pull it off and don't mess anything up and get on YouTube on time and all those nice things, knock all the boxes off, did we do anything if we didn't pray? If we didn't do it out of response of prayer? And so this is the math problem. It was completely convicting for me. I'm just going to give it to you for our little homework assignment. Take it out the door. Uh, is, um, you know, they say you should sleep eight hours a night. That's a really good thing. Sleep eight hours a night. That's about the average human being needs eight hours, and a little Apple Watch will tell you if you slept more or less than that. And then the average work week supposedly is 40 hours a week, which means eight hours a day. So if you had eight plus eight, and you subtract that from 24, you still have 14 hours of free time. So you can learn Japanese too, you know, is what, you know, the blog is going to tell you. Also, if I challenged you, if I challenged you to one hour of uninterrupted prayer this week, you would get to choose that one hour out of 98 possible hours. One in 98 hours could be given to prayer. If I said, pray for an hour without ceasing, because that's what the church is always doing, you would have 98 hours to choose from. Which one of those 98 hours would you use? And so out of all the things the disciples walked around with Jesus, they could tell, man, like when you walk with a mentor and you're like, you think differently than me, and I want to know why you think. I don't know what you're doing. I want to know why you do what you do. Jesus opens up the curtain. And this is the intentional question that I'll leave you with. If you had an hour out of the 98 hours that you have ahead of you this week that you're not sleeping and you're not working, here's what prayer could look like. Our Father. And we might be, even pray, that, pray some of these statements this morning. This, this morning it says, Our Father. And the question would, see, would be, as you approach your prayer closet for that 60 minutes, how could you praise him today? Like, it's not that the problems don't exist, it's that you magnify his character in your life. And we just say, Jesus, right now, we just praise you that you're going to get all the nations because you said that you'd get them. We thank you that you're worthy of, of the suffering that you paid. We think you're drawing nations to yourself. And next, you might feel the Spirit leading you to pray for kingdom come, for petition, what are the wrongs in your world that need righted? And you might say, Lord Jesus, I just pray that you would heal the generational stuckness that's in my family. And I know that I, I don't have the, the willpower, I don't have the wisdom, Lord Jesus, but I know that you can do it. And I just pray that you break off apathy in my family. It started with my father and my father's father, but I pray you break it and that your kingdom would come. You might pray daily bread and say, you know what? Like, not only do I need things, but I also need to know what I need. And I pray that you just, you don't allow things to come into my life that I don't need and that you would bring to me the things I really need. I don't want wormy bread. I want daily bread. 
I don't want political bread. I want prayerful bread. I want what you have. I want what you want to deliver me. You might say, I can't be the only one on earth without sins to bear. Search my heart and know me. Lord, where is the offness? I'm going to assume that there's not only unrepentant sin, but unrecognized sin in my life. I pray that, Spirit, you would, you, would, you would direct me to that because that's the source of my cancer. And nothing else can heal that. And Jesus, I ask that you would forgive me as I forgive others. You might say, Jesus, I don't even know of the things that I'm protected from. But just, Lord, as the angels have come along aside me, I know that you've commissioned them for exactly these purposes. And I ask that you protect me from the things I know of and the things that I don't, and so forth. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.